1,000 UFO sightings reported around the world every month. 90% of these sightings can be explained, but 10% cannot. Officially and unofficially, the U.S. military has been investigating UFOs since 1947. Their top secret goal is to find out what's behind these unexplained sightings. The Pentagon classifies them as unusual airborne anomalies. But a better term is X-Files. Join us as we explore these unsolved cases, UFO incidents that baffle even the U.S. military. This is Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And now, here's Mac Maloney. Welcome to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. You can find Mac's show and all the copies of the show numerously all over the internet, but you can also look at Military X-Files Radio. It's part of Mac Maloney's uh, website, and all his books are listed there as well. And some of the things that we'll be talking about tonight, we're going to link back to uh, many of his books. Mac's longtime friend. Uh, he is the author of many books, and he leads us uh, most weeks on Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. But we have uh, an operational attachment alpha tonight. Uh, a small group of us are uh, taking on another show for him, why he and Juan Juan and Raven are working on a uh, parallel project on their own special mission, special ops going on. Two really special guests tonight. Um, one, a longtime friend in the uh, second hour, and a uh, person that's done incredible research uh, into UFOs and UFO research uh, analysis, and a new friend that uh, this past week, it came together very quickly. Uh, I found his website because of an article I was reading about this air crew, and uh, we were able to uh, connect up, and uh, we had a great phone call and a bunch of emails, and we've connected up. So we have a really special show for you tonight, but let's quickly introduce the posse, as Mac would say. Coming to us from the great state of Michigan, the Battle Creek area, Steve Switchway Ward. How are you tonight, sir? I'm doing really good tonight. So we'll get it out of the way early, Switch. Uh, Everyone wants to know what your culinary uh, designs were. Uh, What did you have in preparation for today's uh, very special uh, edition of Mac Maloney's Military Expos? Are you uh, talking about uh, the breakfast question? Well, we, on this particular edition have been asking what you're doing in preparation for the show uh what you do for that if you remember correctly that's has invoked some very interesting uh, followings on this so yes you can tell me about breakfast but i thought maybe you had a special meal that you might have had in preparation you know carb loading for the marathon kind of thing. Uh, i see okay well it was uh, it's the old staple sugar frosted flakes i'm afraid with two percent milk and hot black coffee with, you know, which invokes many memories of uh, stories, uh, Tony the Tiger and uh, Tony the Tiger costumes and ensembles. But we'll go into that some other time. Well, well, I have to tell you that the last time I, I really disappointed Mac because all I had was an energy bar for breakfast. You know, I explained I was a busy guy and I didn't have time to prepare anything. Probably brought the rating stone, so you got to be careful. I, I probably, with and I feel bad. Coming out of the uh, great state of New Hampshire, a, a fellow New England there. Longtime uh, friend of Mac Maloney, Agent X, the man that uh, worked for the three-letter agencies and then worked for the three-letter agencies, a, a career uh, military man for the United States Army, very good friend of mine as well, and always a pleasure to talk. Agent X, how are you tonight? 
firing on all eight cylinders, Commander, and thanks for having me, and it's good to uh, hear the crew. I, uh, I'll ask quickly, did you have any special meal in preparation? Because I know you are an extremely uh, physically fit individual, and you're uh, back working out on a pretty heavy uh, uh, workout schedule. Anything special that you do uh, prepare to come on for Max show? After church this morning, I actually had corned beef hash on rye toast. Wow. Talk about stepping right up. <laughs> now I'm jealous. Our, our third uh, very special guest, another friend, former guest on my show, uh, Task Force Griffin, when I was uh, broadcasting, uh, does a lot of great work on Sky Tour, a, a co-host with Mark D'Antonio, great friend of all of ours, uh, Amanda Curry, who's coming to us from the Maritime Provinces of Canada. Good day to you, madam, and how are you? Hi, Commander. Long time no chat. We've missed you. How are you? Very good. Uh, Amanda... Uh, contacted me this week because she found one of the funniest tributes to Metallica. She knows that's my favorite <laughs> group. And I, uh, I was laughing myself silly with this uh, young man who just recently discovered uh, Metallica. And uh, it, it's some of the funniest, uh, most uh, heartfelt stuff uh, that is on uh, YouTube. It's a very, very good one. All right. So uh, Amanda, you have, you don't get to answer first. We're going to quickly ask and see how this goes. I need to know from, Switch, and I need to know from X, how many providences in Canada and how many territories? Um, can I get back to you next episode? No, I, I need a guess. Oh, this is what man. I, you, you ask anybody in Canada how many states there are, and they know right off the bat. Well, that's easy. It's an even number. Yeah, Okay. Uh, X, would you like to uh, hazard a number since uh, I, this is the Michigan uh, two-step shuffle I'm getting? <laughs> um, I'd I'd say count. Let's see. 57 provinces and 57 territories. Okay. Amanda, uh, obviously, <laughs> uh, one of these uh, gentlemen, former intelligence officer, didn't pay attention <laughs> that day in geography. Um, and uh, all of us border with Canada, uh, all the states we live in. Coming for tonight's show, Touch Canada. Would you like to set the record straight, or do you want me to quiz me to see if I know? I just have to say, in self-defense, the U.S. military never uh, conducted intelligence operations to collect intelligence on Canada. So it's, that's a that's a rather tricky way that you put that because and, there was quite a bit of that went on during the Civil War, where and, the Confederacy was putting up quite a few uh, attacks uh, from Montreal into the northern states. So the the Union Army was actually doing intel and watching what was going on in Canada. And, of course, the Revolutionary War, I will technically say we didn't have countries formed. So I'll give you a slide on this one. That was before my time. Yeah. <laughs> when I did it, we, we were looking at the Soviets. <laughs> I see. I as well. Uh, I'm going to say uh, 10 provinces and three territories by the uh, latest uh, count. Amanda, you want to check me? I, I was about to say, how up to date is your intel? No, yeah, that's you, it used to be 10 and 2, but then we just got... Do you your, know? I, I know that unit uh, territory, if I remember correctly. Yeah, do, do you know the name of it? No, I don't. None of it. None of it. There we go. None of, we'll have none of it. And, none of it. Uh, none of it. Yeah, and it was added as yeah. another um, territory. So, 10 provinces and two, uh, three territories um, is most up-to-date. Sorry for dating your show, Mac. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
I would have probably been short one or two provinces and I uh, would have had no clue about territories. Yeah, that, that's great switch. It, I always like a, a good submariner when they slide across the line. I This is what I would have said if I really was playing. That's wonderful. Look, we've taken enough time on, on geography and fun with maps and fun with flags. Our guest tonight, first hour, Clint Hayes. Uh, I consider a really good friend uh, because of our Great calls and, and leading up to this show and our shared interests. We've had uh, we've had some interesting intersections in our lives here that we didn't know about until we uh, started talking about uh, his great work. Uh, Clint coming up from the great state of Texas, and he has done incredible amount of research and work on Jay Zemer, a uh, one of the great one of the best pilots I think that was in the uh, United States Army Aviation Forces. During World War II, uh, received the Medal of Honor, and uh, has a great story behind it. Clint, welcome to to Mac Maloney's Military X Files, and to take the time to join us tonight. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Clint, uh, you need to just give the uh, that thumbnail sketch how you got hooked onto this particular crew, this particular case, and doing the research with them. Oh, I can blame that on my dad. Uh, back in 1993, I was in the process of looking for subject material for my first serious effort at a feature screenplay. And my dad knew that. My dad's a private pilot, has been since the 60s. And uh, he was in grade school during World War II. So like a lot of kids back then, he fell in love with the B-17 and with the P-51. Um he sent me, he's, and we've both shared a, a love of World War II aviation. So he sent me a book called Flying Forts by Martin Caden. And he said, read the first chapter, that's your story. So, okay, well, I'm hooked. So I went ahead and, and read it. And he, he couldn't have known then what kind of snowball he was starting. Right. Because I was 24, 25 at the time, and now almost 30 years later, I'm still working on this story off and on. They're just, it hasn't been steady throughout, but it has been consistent throughout. And there is, there is no other story quite like it. Um, I agree. It's it's literally one of a kind, and uh, it it. And once you start digging into it, it's what it's what happened with me. I mean, the story that Caden presented was I came to find very soon after getting into it was was mistaken and flawed in many respects. But the the actual story, you know, the basic story, the heroism and the courage and the grit of this crew certainly came through. And that's the hook for anyone who, you know, who even has a passing familiarity with the story. And it, it's just been, as I, as I kept getting into deeper layers and finding out the story behind this final mission, that because every, everybody tends to look at the final mission, which is a thing to behold. Um, but, but once you start digging into the story and finding out the real story behind the one that's sort of been passed down over the years, you realize this is so much more than even what that was. And then if you dig even more into the personalities of the various crew members, and especially the two Medal of Honor recipients from the mission, Zemer and uh, his bombardier, Sarnowski, 
it's just it, it, there's there's no story quite like it and there's a reason why i've been you know i've spent the last you know quarter century my literally my entire adult life working on trying to get this story out there in as many ways and you know in as many public ways as possible it's just it's incredible i i want to make throw a quick uh, tip of the hat to uh, mr caden i got very close to meeting him i had read many of his books uh growing up as well and uh i perceived you by a few years and I remember as a student pilot reading in the back of Flying Magazine, he had put an ad in the back of Flying Magazine and some of the other uh, very popular uh, magazines at the time. In the uh, 80s, he started working on uh, ghosts and paranormal activity around flying. And he was looking for people to send stories in. And I never forgot the ad. And I tracked him down. Um, in those days, no Internet, obviously. And. We never spoke on the phone, but I, we got a couple letters that went back and forth. Really, really interesting man. Probably one of the uh, leading experts on the B-17. He was responsible for getting B-17s flown uh, back to England for uh, movies uh, that were being done. He wrote the uh, the screenplay and the book um, Marooned, talking about astronauts trapped in space. Quite a career. Uh, he spent time actually even in the Coast Guard or as a Coast Guard liaison uh, with his time as a reservist uh, doing search and rescue. Very, very interesting man. It's very sorry that I didn't get a chance, but uh, it's interesting that that was a tie-in between the two of us because I remember this. And, of course, as I said to you leading up to this week, um, I, I didn't even really connect in my head when you started to talk about uh, uh, Jay Zemer, and I realized that the uh, the flight for the Arnold Airman uh, association, which is an organization for Air Force ROTC cadets, where I started out my ROTC. Uh, that he was our uh, the, the flights. Uh, what the flight was named after was the Zemers uh, flight. That's right. That organization, and we had a really interesting mural that talked about it. And even the mural, as I remember it, was incorrect to the aircraft and what had happened for the Medal of Honor. Uh, <laughs> so it was it was pretty interesting that the accuracy the the obviously the legend portion of it's gone well let's get the audience and the uh, and the rest of the host here caught up take us through uh what it is that led up to this mission uh, you know as succinctly as we can we got to squeeze in and we could do about a five right. hour show on this pretty easily oh yeah easily well i'll start with the mission june 16th 1943 was the date of a solo reconnaissance mission that they flew over bougainville island it was supposed to be a mapping mission. Um, the, the stated mission had been hanging for a couple of months. They had to wait for just the right kind of weather because when you're doing uh, mapping, you know, photo mapping, you have to have a certain amount of cloud cover. You have to have a certain amount of, sun, of uh, sunlight, but not too much. It, you know, it, it, it's, it's very tricky. They had to get there at a certain time of day, and if the weather conditions changed even a little bit, then they had to scrub it, and it had kept getting scrubbed for a couple of months. It was important because Operation Cartwheel at that time was premised on, which was to, uh, the essential goal was to isolate Rabal. Rabal on the island of uh, New Britain in the Solomons was considered the big bad of the Southwest Pacific theater. That was the, it was the most fortified Harbor in the South Pacific. And it was where everything was emanating from in terms of the Japanese movement down at this point in time, 
through 42 and then to 43. The Japanese had made, were very close to being able to, uh, they were already starting to bomb Darwin in uh, northwestern Australia. They bombed Townsville down the, on the east coast of Australia. So there was a real fear about Japan being able to, uh, you know, invade Australia. The Army Air Forces at the time were, <laughs> it was it was Gilligan's Island and MacGyver rolled into one. Um, Absolutely. A really good way to put it, because the, the, the effort was all dedicated to Europe. Yes. Yeah. The, the, every Everyone's eyes were on Europe, and you had a supply chain that was something like 6,000 miles long. Um and, you know, so they were very much left on their own. It was all about ingenuity. It was about being scrappy. It was about hanging on by your fingernails. Um, just to just to try to heckle and prick and plug, you know, whatever you could on the Japanese effort. And they did it. And they really did do it hanging on by their fingernails. Until finally they got enough of a grip and were able to hold them off. And obviously the U.S. Navy, you know, had a huge part to play in that in the Battle of the Coral Sea, which stopped uh, Japan from taking Port Moresby on the southern coast of New Guinea. And then the Army Air Corps, Army Air Force came in and was able to start you know, start getting a foothold and start holding them back. And it wasn't until the spring of 43 that there was enough that they had sort of surpassed the, the defensive position and were able to start being offensive in nature. And to be able to do that, they needed to try to take out Rabal or at least neutralize it. And that meant marching up the Solomon Islands chain. And to do that, they needed maps. Uh, you can't land Marines if you don't know, you know, where the landing places are. And uh, to that effort, they needed maps of, of Bougainville Island, which is the, the largest island on the northern end of the Solomons. So they they kept sending you know, the 8th Photo Recon Squadron had done a lot of work in that respect. But they would sometimes farm this work out to the various squadrons. They had dedicated... B-17s for this purpose. Most of the time they'd use F-5s, which were photo variants of the P-38. But they would use B-17s for some of these long-range uh, long range missions. They'd put fuel tanks in the in the bomb bay. There was no fighter support, um, pretty much in general. Uh, there was almost no fighter support for any of the bombing raids in the South Pacific. They just didn't have the, uh, have the capability in, at that point. So you would send these lone B-17s out on these eight-hour missions with no support. And Jay Zemer was the kind of guy who didn't like to take any chances. So he and his crew, when they got hold of this particular B-17, decided to Zemerize it, uh, as they like to call it. And the, the B-17s in the Southwest Pacific usually had 12 to 13 50s on them already. Um, they would... They wouldn't come from the factory that way. There was a whole lot of, of uh, engineering done, <laughs> modifications done in theater where they would uh, they'd add more nose protection. They'd add, they'd uh, put twin fifties in the radio hatch. That wasn't enough for Zemer. He knew what he was going up against. When you're flying a mapping mission, you have to fly straight and level. Uh, you cannot deviate from that, or you get blurred maps, which are worthless. 
And this particular mission required 22 minute uh, a 22 minute run down the west coast of Bougainville. So that's 22 minutes of, of level flight at 25,000 feet, leaving a bright white contrail behind you, alerting everybody in the area, hey, we're here. So he decided that he wanted to take after some of his friends down in the South Pacific. He mounted a 50 on the deck of the bombardier's compartment that he could fire himself, um, just pointed straight forward. He said it would fortify him when he had to when he had to turn into some of these Japanese planes. He learned a technique in the 22nd Bomb Group, flying B-26s, that the Zero with its fixed guns, if they turned into them, the Zeros would keep trying to turn to to get their uh, their fixed uh, fixed thirties on them, and they would literally just roll them over on their backs. And by the time they rolled over and went past them, then the rear gunners in the B-17 or the B-26 for that matter, you know, could rake them as they went by. Um, it required a certain kind of flying, certainly not the kind of flying that most B-17 pilots were used to flying, but it was effective. And he used this technique uh, very fruitfully, especially on that last mission, because when they were leaving that morning, he had gotten a call the night before saying they needed to add a recon of Buka Island, which is this little bitty island on the northern tip of Bougainville that had an airfield. And there had been intelligence that the Japanese were moving a lot of zeros, Navy zeros, down to Buka, getting ready for an attack on Guadalcanal. And so Buka was they, they feared that Buka had uh, had all these new planes there. A couple of weeks before, Zimmer had been up with his crew to the same place, essentially the same uh, same mission, not mapping, just a recon of Buka. And they'd only run into the you know, half dozen army zeros that they always did, who were never much of a threat. But he didn't want to, you don't kick a hornet's nest, you know, when you're going to have to hang around a spot. And he, he didn't want to do it. He told him, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, then they met them in a jeep as they were taxiing out. The jeep stop, uh, pulled up in front of them and stopped them on their literally on their uh, when they were taxiing out to take off, and they gave them written orders to do this recon of Buka before they did the the Bougainville mapping run. And he said, "Nuts, I'm not going to do it." So they take off. They get out to uh, they get to Bougainville about half an hour early. So they have to kill time. They can't get there too early. The sun wasn't up enough. And he asked the crew, okay, we're here early. What do we do? Uh, we can we can fly around the ocean for a little while and then come back and start the mapping mission. Or we can just go do the recon like they asked us to. And the crew being his crew said, you know, hell with it. Let's go, go ahead and go do it. They knew, you know, they were there. Another, they didn't want to tell another B-17 crew they're going to have to risk their asses getting out there to, you know, to do the same thing. So they went ahead and did the recon. And it happened exactly the way that Zemer was afraid it might, with the only difference being that instead of stirring up the same six Army Zeros that they were used to, they stirred up, by their account, 17 Zeros taxing or taking off from Buka. It was loaded up. Right. And... They proceeded to go ahead and do the mapping mission. Um, it had to be done. It was perfect weather. They didn't know when it was going to be able to be done again. So they went ahead and did it. And with about a minute left to go, according to Japanese records, a total of eight finally caught up with them. And instead of 
being in a situation where Zemer could turn into these zeros, they attacked in coordination with one another. There were three in front, two in back. And so he couldn't do his squeeze play, as he liked to call it. And the first two minutes, and actually you could you could probably burrow that down to uh, the first about 30 seconds of that encounter, changed the war for all of them. It uh, The combined attack... Uh, Wounded Zemer grievously, mortally wounded the bombardier, Joseph Sarnowski. Wounded three others, set the oxygen tanks on fire, and caused them to have to dive and uh, dive from 25,000 feet down to about 10,000. It took all of Zemer's strength and his co-pilots to pull the, uh, the fortress out of the dive, and the Zeros followed them down, and they had a running engagement for the next 40 to 45 minutes with these Zeros that would circle around. They'd line up on either side and then circle around to the front because the the 17 was always weakest on the front. But that's where they'd uh, concentrate. So that's where you know the the forts down there always concentrated most of their firepower on the front. Unfortunately, all of the forward firing guns had been knocked out. So Zemer at that point was able to start doing his squeeze play and turning into to one and then the other where he just, you know, he'd crank it over. And being the engineer that he was, he knew the limits of his plane. He would fly the B-17 to the absolute limits of its design, not past. He knew, you know, like I said, he knew his plane, but he had scared enough people off from wanting to be on his crew that it, 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 it helped distill things for people who wanted to be on his crew. He had exactly the crew that he needed on his on his aircraft. He and Sarnowski handpicked them, and they weeded out the misfits and the screw-offs, which is ironic because the legend of the eager beavers is they, they were all legends. Uh, they were all uh, misfits and screw-offs, the dregs of the, the squadron that he put together. It was this whole Dirty Dozen story, when in fact it was the exact opposite. He had a crew of very cool professionals like he and Sarnowski with him, and that's what they did. And for 40 to 45 minutes, they uh, they put up this running fight until the Zeros finally gave up. Most of them were out of fuel. A couple of them had uh, had to limp down. One of them did uh, didn't go in, uh, did go into the ocean, and then they had to get back. Well, Zemer was fading in and out of consciousness, and the co-pilot, who miraculously was un- uninjured, took care of the rest of the crew while the top turret gunner took the flight controls for an hour and a half. And uh, Zemer being the guy who, you know, he, he wanted everybody versed. Preparation was the name of his game. He was a Boy Scout. He was an Eagle Scout at the age of 13. And he was all about preparation. He said that, that fear comes from lack of preparation. So they trained and trained and trained. And, you know, so everybody had flown the plane, at least some. So Johnny Abel, the top turret gunner, assistant engineer that day, uh, took over. He was down to original crew members. They were out with malaria. So they had a substitute pilot and a substitute belly turret gunner. And uh, Johnny flew the plane while uh, Britton, the co-pilot, helped take care of the, the rest of the crew. The radio operator had been nicked in the neck. But uh, he was able to triangulate and get a, a fix on Dabadura, which was on the east coast of, of uh, New Guinea. It was an emergency strip that they were using. 
So they limped their way back to Dabadura. Uh, they landed hot. They had no flaps. They had no brakes. But Britain greased her in the, uh, the best he could. And he said it was the best landing he ever made. And for that mission, Zemer and Sarnowski were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And the rest of the crew were awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which is only one step removed from the Medal of Honor. Right. Most decorated uh, crew? They are the most highly decorated. Military. And yep. a complete rarity that you would have that many people on one aircraft. We're up against our break. Um, let's, uh, let's just do a quick recap. Uh, Mac Mullins Military X-Files, my guest, Clint Hayes. We're talking about the Eager Beavers, uh, a somewhat le- – uh, not somewhat, a legendary crew, and uh, Clint has uh, spent a great portion of his life trying to bring the uh, accurate story because, as I have said many times, uh, this story resembles a lot of the things that Mac has written in his military uh, action-adventure novels for years. I mean, he has great mil tech in it, but he always has been able to grind it down to the incredible stories of what the individuals, the people that are involved in these kind of things. And uh, Clint's work and putting together the website, what we'll talk about on the other side of the break, has been phenomenal. And uh, his quest to try to get this to uh, make it to the screen. Mac Maloney's Military X-Files, Distant Thunder Radio Network. I am here with Switch, Agent X, and Amanda, our very special friend from Canada tonight. Please stay with us. We'll be right back at this break. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed. The Hampton Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe, with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Hello, this is Commander Cobra of Task Force Griffin, KGR Radio, KGRRadio.com. And I need you to be a member like myself of the People's Mosquito and help rebuild and fly this great aircraft. I have three friends here today also who are going to ask you the same thing. Consider becoming a member of the People's Mosquito. Hello, I'm John Lilly. I'm the Managing Director of the People's Mosquito. And I'd like you to donate or support our flying program. Hi, I'm Ross Sharp. I'm the Director of Engineering of the People's Mosquito, and I'd like you to help us rebuild this magnificent aircraft. Hi, I'm Bill Ramsey. I'm the Operations Director and Tame Pilot of the People's Mosquito. I need you to join us and become my wingman. Join all of us and be a supporter of the People's Mosquito program. Thanks. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. 
When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help, but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They're even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone or something looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Welcome back to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Commander Cobra. Uh, running the uh, operational detachment tonight, why Mac and JJ and Raven are off doing a special project, one of their special missions. With me tonight is Switch, Agent X, and uh, a new friend to uh, Mac Miller's Military X-Files, Amanda Curran. She's coming to us uh, from the Maritime Provinces of Canada, where we have learned earlier in the show that there are 10 of, and recently added a territory for three territories. So it's important that we keep uh, current with our neighbors to the north. Uh, Clint has been uh, our guest tonight uh, with us tonight is uh, Clint Hayes. He has been he, he has a lifelong or at least a, a lifelong adult uh, passion on an, a, a group of uh, men that flew a B-17 in the South Pacific during World War II, uh, recognized with uh, two Medal of Honors and uh, distinguished uh, crosses for um, all the other members of the crew. It's an amazing story leading up to it. It also has a lot of intrigue. I want to, Clint, I want to, before we jump into a little more of this uh, and, and the goal that you have in talking about the website, um, I want to start with uh, with X. Um, X, did you know much about this mission? And did you, did, and what do you think? I 
I was only vaguely familiar with it uh, because it was the U.S. Army Air Force uh, Air Corps. Um, I did not know the detail that we just listened to, and I, I just found that that was fascinating, especially to include that the B-17 was um, effective against the uh, Zeros, at least yep. more effective than I would have thought, having seen the uh, the movie that was called Fortress that came right. out about 15 years ago. And the, 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 the fortresses were really like paper thin. Um, so, no, I had not known that much. I do know, and I was going to ask um, the guest uh, to comment on it, I've been told, I don't know if it's true, I tried to look it up and can't, can't verify it, that the U.S. Um, Army Air Corps in World War II lost, had more losses than the U.S. Navy and the Marine Corps combined. It was a very dangerous uh, job. Can you shed any light on that, Clinton? Yeah, sure. I do believe that that's correct. Uh, that's mostly due to the European theater. Um it's funny because the European theater was literally the polar opposite of the Southwest Pacific um, in in every kind of every conceivable way, literally and fi uh, figuratively. Um, the you know obviously the fatality rate over of Europe was horrific. It wasn't matched in the Southwest Pacific, but the Southwest Pacific had had features, <laughs> obstacles in it that Europe never had to face. Uh, the distances flown were uh, were much larger. Instead of having you know, four or five hour missions, they had two day missions. These these missions could last 17 or 18 hours because they're the distance having to be covered. They're having to fly from Australia to uh, New Guinea and then out to, you know, the various islands or, you know, far north New Guinea that they're having to uh, either recon, bomb, you know, whatever. So yeah, the, the fatality rate in Europe was far higher, but the, the nature of the war in the Southwest Pacific was <laughs> you had to see it to believe it. Um, when I when I said it was Gilligan's Island meets MacGyver, it's not really far fetched. They were having to their their supply line was stretched so thin and the dust was so bad that they were having to in the early days, they were having to patch uh, bullet holes with flattened tin cans. They were having to cannibalize their planes to be able to get others flying. Uh, the the B-17s from the very early stages of the war that came up from the Philippines, the 19th Bomb Group, were so beat up that they were repeatedly having to be flown when they should have been scrapped. Um, it, it was an exercise in grit and determination and innovation that you, you didn't you didn't see in Europe because it wasn't as necessary because it was, you know, it, it was the primary. The, the South Pacific was the ugly stepchild and they just had to make do with what, you know, with what they did. And it, <laughs> it it's, it's just amazing what they were able to accomplish with as little as they did. Uh, you know, Amanda, you are, um, you're probably obviously the youngest, but you also have a very uh, unique um, kind of a clean slate on everything around on the story and not a lot of direct experience, but you have always demonstrated to me a keen sense of uh, being sensitive and, and getting a really deep understanding of people that we've talked about them and other people that we've, you know, collectively uh, been in the same room, the uh, same virtual room for the, uh, the shows. What's your impression of what you've, you've heard so far? 
Uh, it's fascinating. I personally have not heard the story. I, I wasn't aware of this. Um, I was just wondering, um, from what I read, they were known as the eager beavers uh, because of their constant volunteerism. I'm just wondering, um, maybe maybe you could shed light on this. Were they volunteering for everything just to get experience and do their part so they could run missions like this final one in June of 43? Or were they volunteering for ones that maybe other groups were shying away from? Or what, like, it, what, they just wanted to help their country and, and couldn't help but be, be involved? Like, why were they the eager beavers? Why were they always the first volunteer everywhere? That's a fantastic question, and the answer is yes. <laughs> to all now you know why we spent the extra money to bring her in virtually from Canada for the show. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a great question, and it has to do with the nature of the two men responsible for putting the crew together. Uh, the the feature screenplay that I wrote and the miniseries a- adaptation that I've uh, created from it are both titled Above and Beyond, and for a very specific reason. Um, Jay Zemer and Joseph Sarnowski from birth had this trait about them. They, they set incredible standards for themselves and high standards and met them all the way through. And Zemer, especially when you, when you read, when you start getting into the backstory there, he, he pushed himself all the time. He set these goals for himself. He wanted to be, uh, be an Eagle Scout at the age of 13. He did it. Um, this is a guy who, when he failed the, uh, the Navy flight, uh, flight exam because of his vision, he spent a summer using, uh, uh an eye technique that was <laughs> later disproven to, to work scientifically. And yet in three months he fixed his eyesight with it and passed the Navy exam. Um, yeah, I mean, the guy, he's a thing to behold. He was first put into the B-26. The B-26 did not fit his personality. He was in this plane for 16 months. He was never able to transition from uh, from the right seat to the left seat. He never became command pilot. And uh, that's one of the reasons why in a theater where they were short on co-pilots already, you know, short on personnel, he finagled a transfer himself from his B-26 squadron into the 43rd bomb group flying a plane, the B-17, that he had never flown before. And yet, in six weeks, he went from self-described squadron errand boy to command pilot nominated for uh, Silver Star. Um, it, it, it's just his nature. And so he put this crew together, and he was always volunteering for missions. He wanted to fly. He had loved air, airplanes since he was a kid. He got his pilot's license before uh, he uh, went to war. Um, he was the manager of the, the flight club at MIT uh, when he was there. This is a guy who was always pushing himself, and that's the crew that he wanted. And he got it. They handpicked this crew, and he was always volunteering for missions, and they were fine with that. They wanted to move the chains. They were a lean-forward group of guys, and... It, it's not, and I want to be careful because it's not that they were braver or more courageous than any of the guys down there. They weren't. All these guys, uh, you know, all these guys put themselves out there in ways that, you know, that, that you would expect, especially from that they, generation. In fact, like they repeatedly stated, they have stated that over the years in, their, in the writings that are left behind by the members of the crew that's, that survived. 
Yeah. They didn't see themselves as any uh, any braver or any more uh, capable. No, no, of course not. And uh, and you know they they knew there were you know everybody around them was was just as you know brave in that respect as as they were, but they weren't quite as eager. And I think that's the that's a little bit of the difference is that and you know I've I've talked to other veterans down there and uh, you know lots of them actually and they all they all said a similar thing the the, the difference between guys like Zemer and his great friend Ken McCuller who was a legend in the Southwest Pacific another B seventeen pilot um, they just wanted to be up and. One of the lines that I use in the script, it's not one that I, it's not something that I know G. Zimmer said, but it's it's something that I would fully expect him to say. If I can sit, I can fly. Um, he, he didn't like sitting around. And that's why when, even though they were starting to fly regular combat missions almost every day, come May 1943, they're now the tip of the spear. They're up in uh, Port Moresby. They're in, you know, they're actively in combat for the first time almost since their inception. It's what they had been working towards. When this camera plane comes in from the 8th uh, eighth Photo Recon Squadron, it's referred to as a hard luck Hattie because it's it's got, you know, it just seems to have bad luck attached to it. The tail number is 412666. So, you know, that's where they got old 666 from. And, you know, it, this plane just had this reputation, but Zemer sees it as an opportunity. So they loaded up with three more guns than uh, most of the, the 17s down there had. It had a total of 16. It had twins, twin 50s in the waist, which is quite possibly the only instance of that in World War II on a plane that was regularly, that was going to be used in combat. Right. Um, they experimented with it in the European theater, but uh, the B-17s were too heavy, and uh, it just, it, it, it turned out not being helpful. But for, for their missions, going up against, you know, it, with that kind of, uh, of situation, they wanted as many guns as possible. And, you know, they, they wanted to fly as much as possible. They wanted to have, they wanted to, to move the chains. Uh, they, they didn't want to be sitting around. They would rather be flying than sitting. And they wanted to do it as much as possible. Switch. Uh, give me your uh, your take on this. You, know, you and I we've uh, we've talked a lot of uh, military parts and pieces. W- what do you? What's your reaction to all this? Uh, you've, served just, a, you've served in, a, in a, an extremely demanding uh, crew uh, ship, uh, so you understand that that crew philosophy and and when everybody next to you is dependent uh, on the person next to them doing their job and covering for each other. Right. It just gets to be a matter of, of habit and, uh, you know, m- making sure, I mean, you don't want to miss a uh, labeling a gauge improperly on your logs, you know, any, anything like that. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of this story. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that uh, occurred to me, I wondered, uh, did, uh, was there any recognition at the time? I mean, obviously not prior to a mission, but uh, uh, were they, they, they had all these decorations. They were, uh, they were uh, certainly recognized by the military, but did they get any, uh, uh, I mean, was there even a newsreel dedicated to any of their missions? Did, did people at the time know about them or maybe just shortly after the war? They were starting to get some, some recognition thanks to some, uh, AP reports, uh, various uh, newspaper or uh, wire reports coming out of the area. There was a mission to WeWAC um, in May of 43 
that made a lot of the newspapers. If you get on like newspapers.com and do a search on this crew, this one pops up repeatedly where uh, against orders um, after their, uh, their own bombing run, Zemer got so annoyed at the searchlights that he took the 17 down to 900 feet and the crew strafed the searchlights. They knocked three of them out. <laughs> and uh, so the so the planes coming in behind them wouldn't have to uh, wouldn't have to suffer the the wrath oh, of searchlights. And that 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 got some notice. Now what's interesting is that he was awarded a second silver star, and Zemer himself wrote that it was for that mission. But if you actually look at the uh, the, uh, the commendation itself, it refers to another mission that. I can't even find any details on. Um, it's, uh, it's. I know that it happened. It's in his logbook, but there was, there didn't seem to be anything special about it. I know that he got called to the carpet on, on uh, that WeWAC mission, and it makes me wonder if, you know, he was, he came up against a possible court martial for another mission and possibly for this one as well. But when the press picked up on this mission. I think the brass got cold feet about pushing that. And, you know, this is one of those areas where, you know, one of the one of the unfortunate things that's been passed down over the years about Zemer, I, I don't like the word renegade. He was a maverick, to be sure. He, he liked to go out on his own uh, own path. But to me, there is a there's a difference between a renegade and a maverick. And calling him a renegade doesn't understand the meaning of the term. Um, he liked to push limits when he felt like it was necessary. He felt that was necessary to protect the other bom- uh, other bombers on the mission, and you know he would he would do that on a fairly regular basis. Um, but but once they started getting some press, the other the other squadron uh, the, uh, their their squadron mates recognized that they like to be fully prepared. Um, they did get a reputation for that. And uh, once they started calling themselves the eager beavers for their you know, constant, you know, volunteering, the rest of the squadron did did pick up on it. But they also couldn't escape the fact that that Zemer himself and and his crew were were something were something different. You know, most crews didn't you know didn't take over a B seven didn't requisition a a camera plane with a bad reputation for themselves and then put red tape across the revetment saying keep out. While they, you know, stripped all the the armor plating out of it to make it faster and put new, uh, you know, put new engines on it, and you know, take out all the uh, the armor cans just, you know, because they wanted to to get the weight down so it'd be, you know, it'd be as fast as they could possibly make it. They recognize. Let me let me let me quickly jump a couple things in it you said. Go ahead. Uh, when they did this work on this airplane, they were mostly doing it themselves. Uh, Yes. This this Pacific. Uh, South Pacific especially did not have a lot of pilots, didn't have a lot of navigators, bombardiers, crew members, and the same thing went for their maintenance crews. So uh, this is another thing about Zemer's background that uh, when you when you get into uh, the website and when you start to do a little uh, research that uh, Clint has has compiled, you find out that uh, he was you know truly an engineer. And I wanted to throw that in there that the uh, mascot of MIT is a beaver, nature's engineer. And I always thought that was kind of uh, a unique crossover. I don't think it was intentional. I have no way to know now. Um, but I thought that was kind of a, uh, a unique uh, tie-in to it. But That's funny. He, now you know what? He I flew never the B-17 that. like an A-17. He flew it like an attack platform. 
and that is another part of this that I think uh, is is critical background to what's going on. The bomber uh, philosophy and the mast formation and the daylight precision bombing, um, that was the core understanding of where the United States was with its bomber fleet going in. You have, um, you and, and the, the South Pacific was, was because of the conditions they were in, they were taking bomber airplanes and turning them into attack airplanes. The work that was done under General Kenny, uh, another famous aviator that comes out of this Pappy gun, uh, mm-hmm. flying his activities in there. That was a show that I did in the past uh, on him. They were modifying airplanes in a way to turn them into an attack platform. That's what Jay Zemer did with his crew. But he goes a step that is just so overlooked. Everybody had the ability to keep the plane in the air and fly it to, it, to some level of, of competency. That doesn't necessarily mean they would have been able to get it back to land it, but they can get it to a safe place to bail out and survive. This is the kind of level of stuff that goes on. And it's curious to me, because what I really want to spend this last part with you, Clint, is talking about uh, what the goal is, what you're doing with the with your website, and we should tell everybody, Zemer, eagerbeavers.com, Z-E-A-M-E-R-S. E-R-S, E-R-S, Zemer, Zemer, Beavers, yeah. Mm-hmm. Eagerbeavers.com. Dot com. Is, mm-hmm. That's the site. Yes. Talk a little bit about your quest to get this, because I think this is uh, more than worthy to be uh, a band of brothers, uh, Pacific, the uh, the other great show that HBO did about the Marines in the South Pacific, much like they did with uh, Band of Brothers. I think where, so. Yeah. Where are you with that? Tell us what you, you're driving with and all the stuff you've done with the website. Well, the website was uh, partly I just wanted to have uh, a public presence uh, for the crew because uh, at the time there wasn't even a book out about them. And uh, then the uh, the Drury and Clavin book came out, uh, Lucky 666, which I'm, I'm glad it came out. And you and I have talked about this. I mean, there there are there are a lot of issues with that book, but at least, you know, it did get the story out. But I wanted right. to have my web presence getting the real story of the crew out there but also obviously the more awareness i can raise about the crew the more chances that i have to be able to get it even more into the public realm i've been trying since the, uh, since the 90s to get either a feature or most recently uh, a mini series done i finally decided on the mini series just because i feel like it there is the time the time could not be more ripe right now for a miniseries of this nature, because you've got Masters of the Air coming out, presumably in 2022, which tells, to me, it's a compliment to to this story. It tells the B-17 story in Europe. We need one that tells the B-17 story in the Southwest Pacific, and it just so happens there's a story about the most highly decorated air crew in American history that you can use to do it. Absolutely. and it, it's just, I think it's tailor-made to it. And so I'm, I'm trying to raise awareness, you know, with the website right now. I am uh, I'm literally, you know, trying to get uh, you know, queries sent out uh, to various production companies and, uh, you know, well, just trying, no, no, trying every route share, I can. You did share with me, you've had some interest, but often what you have is people that, well, they want to take maybe the name 
and they want to build a completely different story. They don't want the accuracy, and you're really uh, you're, you're you're hanging on tight to this. has to be an accurate portrayal. Well, yeah, I mean, there. I don't have a problem to you know to to some degree of. <laughs> Of combining events, this sort of a thing, but I'm I'm very protective of this crew. Um, I made a promise to the family members that if they didn't recognize their dads, uh, you know, their husbands, in my final portrayal, then my job wasn't done yet. Um, and you know, I look at I look at movies like The Highwaymen, um, where they they took a they took the integrity of the source material very seriously and they stuck very close to that. It can be done and still have a very compelling story. And, and that's, that's what I'm after. And yeah, I was approached a few years ago by a, uh, by a producer who was interested in the story, but like I said, he wanted to take it the dirty dozen route. And when I politely, you know, told him, well, that's, that's not what this story is. And that's not the angle I'm, that I'm taking on it. He disappeared. Um, you know, so I'm I'm trying to hold out as much as I can for for someone. This story needs a champion, and it it needs a champion the way you know films like you know Forrest Gump and The Princess Bride. You know, people who 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 found the source material and The Highwaymen. Uh, you know, who who found the source material so compelling that they felt like okay, this this needs to not change. This need this story needs to stay the way it is. And we just need to hold on to it as long as it takes to get it told the right way. And that's what I'm looking for. And uh, well, well there, there are people out there to do it. And I sure hope that uh, as Mac, Mac will, he'll, he'll be cracking up when he hears this. Uh, I hope uh, Mr. Michael Bay uh, catches this uh, this broadcast because <laughs> I'd love to see him get behind this because he is the I, what he did with 13 hours. Um, well, the Benghazi uh, uh, story was, you know, incredibly accurate incredibly fair and uh, it, it the action fit All right working around the guest amanda any uh comments and thoughts as we're coming down to the end here with uh, mr clint hayes and talking about zemers eager beavers um well you were mentioning um that they modified the planes and uh quite the engineers as well um i thought i read something on your website that one of the planes was recovered from like a military plane graveyard and parts were used for another plane. What did the plane crash or is that where like the planes go when they've been retired or can you touch on that story? Uh, yeah, you know just I mean? real, real quick. Part of, part of the legend of this crew is that they pulled, uh, you know, pulled this plane out of the, you know, out of the graveyard and got it back to flight status. And that part is simply not true. The plane was, already flying it had been uh made airworthy already the eighth photo was it was already flying it but it kept getting shot up and you know it, it just got a bad rep um so the the eighth was very happy to unload it back on the 65th bomb squadron and zemer was very happy to to accommodate them and that and uh, they went ahead and they 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 augmented the plane. They didn't get it back to flight status, but they did zemerize it. That, like I said, that's what they like to call it. They did soup it up and uh, you know get it up to their their specifications. Was this old six 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 or a different plane? Yeah, yeah, this is old six six six. And there's some confusion about the name because some uh, some outlets refer to it as Lucy. Zemer had it named Lucy two days before that final mission, is my understanding. And uh, he, he named it after a girlfriend at Langley, but he got married. No, not soon. Lucifer then. 
no, 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 okay. no, no, it was named for Although that, a, a, very, a very interesting uh, tie in there that you would pick up. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I heard someone mention paranormal early yep. in the show, so I thought, okay, we have a graveyard, we have Lucy, what's going on here? Well, you know, the other thing that you, you're touching upon there, Amanda, there is a, there is kind of a, a, a paranormal in that it's absolutely incredible. And the outcome of this mission reminds me of a, of a, of a great book that I read uh, about a year ago um, with a, a, a an Irish warrior, Celtic warrior, because they were able to um, successfully win this battle. It turned everything else. This particular mission and the ability to bring back those pictures did have far-reaching implications to how they were able to defeat and start to island hop. And that it, it, it has tie-ins to so many things that, that went, went on because ultimately getting a place for a B-29 that could reach Japan was the goal. And this was a yeah, critical step in, in reaching that. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And Clint, I, I, I was just going to say, it reminds me, I know it's apples and oranges. A little bit of the uh, Major Greg Boynton uh, Black Sheep Squadron um, story because they were Marines. They flew Corsairs, which was considered not fit for prime time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, for carriers. That's correct. They were um, they were um, mostly butter bar pilots with little experience, and that went well. I mean, I mean, when I say went well, I mean. That's a proof of concept for this type of story being popular um, to to the uh, people. You know, actually, you bring like up that. a really great point, and, and I just quickly want to make this point. They are portrayed as screw ups. Uh, you know, the, they were the drags of the Marine Corps, and that was played up very, very uh, sadly in that series. And many of them uh, were very upset in the later years for the, the terms because that is not what it was. They were pilots that were uh, caught in different places between co- squadrons and assignments. Right. And right. Bullington, because it, and, and one of my heroes, I, I'm looking at a signed autograph picture. Uh, he flew with a friend of mine that was a, a flying tiger. When he was a flying tiger and, and that picture was passed to me, one of my heroes. But. He had the ability, like Zemer, to figure out how do I get these people together? Right. How do we grab the gear and let's get into the fight? Right. And and that's yeah. what it's making me think of. And also, you're right about the intelligence collected at Rabal was critical. Yeah, it's it, it. There are a lot of parallels there, both both in how they were portrayed and how they weren't portrayed. Um, you know how they should have been. Um, and yeah, I mean just the. The fact that, you know, there has been the, you know, Baba Black Sheep, you know, but when you look at just the last few years, I mean, it's really incredible that I first started trying to push this story on during the 50th anniversary of World War Two. And I thought after Saving Private Ryan that the war genre in general was done. I felt like, you know, okay, well, Spielberg's done this, you know, masterpiece on World War Two. I guess that'll be the end of that. Instead, over the last, what, seven years, we've had Unbroken, we've had uh, Darkest Hours, we've had Midway, we've had Hacksaw Ridge. 
Um, we have the announcement this past fall of a mini series uh, on uh, Audie Murphy, who is one of the most highly decorated soldiers right. of World War II. And uh, now we've got Masters of the Air, the miniseries coming out. We've had Band of Brothers in the Pacific, obviously. I mean, it's incredible to, incredible to me how much interest there still is because, you know, Hollywood doesn't make films for audiences that don't exist. Um, right. They they know that, you know, people are interested in these, you know, in these stories. And I think because of the broader culture issues that are going on right now, I think people are, are even more interested in them and feeling a need for them than ever before. And, you know, that's, that's why I feel like the, the timing could not be more right for this story to come out. Well, we've been talking with Mr. Clint Hayes, Zemers, Eager, Beavers, Z-E-A-M-E-R-S-E-A-G-E-R, B-E-A-V-E-R-S.com, his website, talking about Jay Zemer and an incredible group that he led on a B-17 to do an incredible mission with, with that had far-reaching impact to the South. And it's a great story, and it's his story of how he has worked for 30 years to get this to be the accurate portrayal and keep it the standards is equally impressive. And I want to throw one last thing before we go. My mother's birthday is 16 June. She was four years old when this mission oh, wow. occurred, and uh, <laughs> she's still with us. And I will be reminding her uh, soon on her birthday uh, when we're together for that. And uh, it's my it's my wife's dad's birthday as well. Well, there you go. There <laughs> another tie be. in between Clint and I. It, it, <laughs> we funny. found that we had a number as we got together on this. Macaloni's Military X Files on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. My guest on this first hour has been Mr. Clint Hayes. Incredible story. I thank you so much, Clint, on behalf of Mac for uh, taking the time to come with us. And I look forward to when we have you on again when Mac's at the helm. We can get you back on. Maybe we'll have a, some update, a positive update of where things are at. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the the chance to, to talk about this crew. I, I, as you can tell, I can I can do that for quite some time. And, and, and well worthy of it. But uh, also take a good bow for yourself because uh, I think you're fighting the good fight here. And I think uh, Jay and the rest of the gang uh, is looking down and, uh, and and smiling in support. Well, I hope so. I appreciate that. Mac Mullins, Military X-Files. We'll be back after this. Please stay with us. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed. The Hampton Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's hat and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe, with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. 
When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help, but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They're even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone, or something, looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Welcome to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. This is Commander Cobra at the helm tonight of this very special operations detachment. Alpha, that's running uh, Mac's show, why he and Juan Juan and Raven are off on a speaker mission of their own, some kind of a special project that they're working on. Rounding out the uh, co-hosts tonight is Steve Switchblade Ward, coming to us from Michigan, Agent X, who is coming to us from New Hampshire, and Amanda Curran, new to Macaroni's Military X-Files, but to many folks that will hear this show that listen to other great uh, radio on the paranormal and the investigation thereof. Uh, Amanda's known at, at KGRA. She co-hosts uh, with uh, Mark D'Antonio on Sky Tour. And she's a very good friend. She's been, all of them have been guests, including the person that we're bringing on to this segment. Uh, another, what I consider a very good friend and guest uh, on my previous program when it was on KGRA, Cheryl Costa. I think premier um, investigator and probably the best example of how to really do the hard analysis. Um, Cheryl, great to have you. Welcome on behalf of Mac and Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And let me preface this before I turn it over to you. Mac and I will often talk about on his show and when we're together that one of the most um, aggravating, irritating things about the study of UFOs is that 
a lot of conjecture gets thrown around and then it gets turned into somehow to be science. It gets turned into be somehow to be fact. Um, there isn't uh, analysis. There isn't hard uh, work that's done. Um, everything is uh, easy conjecture and, and thrown around. And I've always been, uh, well, you're, you're writing in all your other work that you've done over the years. That's how we actually got to know each other. It was because of Bill Skywatcher, who's doing an unbelievably great job of once again producing this special edition for us. Is how we connected up and, and uh, got together to do shows and, and talk. And we, we chat on a fairly frequent basis, which has been uh, been great. So I, I commend you, tip of the hat, to the uh, the hard work that you and your wife, Linda, have done to, uh, to really break down what the available data, the facts that are there, to, 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 to put analysis to it. Hi, got distracted here. I'm sorry. Say it again, please. <laughs> well, you have done the hard work, the hard analysis of data and facts that are there, where this is something that myself and Mac have commented for years. It's just it's not uh, it's not common and it should. Yes. yes. And you have and you and Linda have done a phenomenal job of putting that together. And we're going to talk about the book that you guys have uh, right. put together that's coming out and the, the hard work that you've done in the, uh, the writing. And it, I want people to understand this. When I say hard work, it doesn't mean it's. It's dull or it's not exciting. It's analysis that makes you understand that gets people excited about what is there available, what's there. It gives you a measure to figure out what a lot of this means. So yeah. from there, let me ask you, um, how's it been for this particular challenge and project? Uh, this has been kind of weird. Uh, uh, if you look at it from the standpoint as a, a five-year journey, um, we did our original book. We wor started working on it in 2016, literally New Year's Day 2016, and that led to the publishing of the first desk reference in, in March of 2017, okay? And then uh, that was about a 2,000-hour project between the two of us because we were – kind of tr walking on the moon there because we really didn't know how to do a statistics book on UFOs. In the intervening time since 2017 and uh, this uh, during the middle of uh, 2020, um, we put probably about uh, 1,900, 2,000 hours um, crawling through the data, doing, looking at it different ways, charting it different ways, um, um, writing extra algorithms for the database to help us reveal the data. So last, uh, during 2020, during the lockdown, I thought, well, I was going to sit down and, and write a couple of uh, uh, books about UFO shapes, the statistics, and classifying like by triangles, by polygons, by circles, that kind of thing, and the exotics. Right. And the first thing I realized, one of the things I wanted to do, I wanted to be able to reveal the stuff right down to the municipal level. And oh, 15 to 20% of the 148,000 in the database that we had at that time is now 167,000 records. Um, the cities were spelt wrong. And it made it impossible for us to sort on them and, and, and gather, the, gather the numbers. So um, at the beginning of last August, um, I said, well, we're going to have, we're going to be doing a 2020 book. It uh, looks like we just got to jump into it and do this. Folks, you need to remember out there, I am retired technically. And I actually sat down and started working about a seven hour day um, from the first week of August 
all the way through to the first week of January. And it was basically about 650 hours, and we went into every line of the data, corrected the spelling of the city, corrected the county, added latitude, longitude, and zip code. Okay. And uh, Cheryl, just want to throw in there for, for the audience. Sure. What the data that you refer to that I referred to, can you explain what that is just quickly? Yes. Um, we had uh, the National UFO Reporting Center's data, okay? And we also had the data from uh, Mutual UFO Network or MUFON. Um, National UFO Rep Reporting Center or New Fork, as we call it, uh, is about 60% of the data. And MUFON is about 40%. In fact, uh, the exact percentage number when you actually split hairs has stayed pretty consistent. In fact, through 2020, people want to know how much we're going to, how we're going to end out 2020. And we had built a mathematical model based on the numbers we knew those databases had. We thought we would be within plus or minus 2%. We ended up being plus or minus point. Oh, two percent. Right. So we Fantastic. put it right on. So, yeah, that's that's where the data comes from. We don't pull from any other sources. These are the two New Fork and MUFON are the two major databases. So that's what we used. Excellent uh, uh, source. And I didn't mean to slow you down. So continue no explain how crunching because I, I love the it, it's if, if neoclassical fits uh, early on in the UFO uh, world and studies, there were reports of people showing up with the uh, the binder. And I know Switchell will be able to add some uh, direct color on this and direct uh, words on this, you know, and showing witnesses, experiencers uh, point out in this in this book uh, what you uh, what you think you saw, what what the shape of it looked like. And I'm, that, I'm, that's why I was impressed, because you you, you follow all of it. You have uh, a, a complete sense of the subject as well as the analytics to go with it. Well, one thing we do when we process the data, in fact, the stuff we did back in 2016, stuff that took us two or three months to do back then, I can do in a day now. Right. Okay, because we, we wrote process, we literally wrote process procedures that comes from both of us having been federal contractors, you know, <laughs> old habits die hard. Uh, logging all this time, that is another skill that we all developed. Um, one of the things we did was we, we first thing we did was we lost, we got rid of the write-ups. A lot of people called us up and said, can we have your database? And they what they were looking for is they wanted to get in there and see if there was something fancy in there in the write-up. And we only kept what, when, where, what shape and uh, uh, time and all that stuff. We, we That's all we kept was raw data information. And um, th that was the key part. But as we started looking at the data, we started finding uh, trends going certain ways. And we, we discovered, uh, and this new book really talks about it in depth. In our first book, we said that UFO sighting reports are, are driven, seem to be driven by population. Most people know that temperate weather was a major, a major driver and the, um, uh, leisure time was a factor. Okay. And we were able to prove that in 2020 to, 20, when we all went into a two-month lockdown, the sightings went through the roof. Like the sighting right. reports went through the roof. Um, since that time, uh, we have expanded um, the write-up now. It's, it's, it's population, it's temperate weather, it's leisure time, hours of darkness, and availability to broadband. 
That's the major drivers. And then there were four influencers, and the influencers were um, uh, uh, closeness to bodies of water, uh, uh, proximity to toxic uh, environments, you know, like uh, dead mining towns, dead oil fields, uh, uh-huh. that type of thing, uh, strip mining bases, that kind of thing, um, proximity to um, uh, fault lines, okay? And then there was this thing called uh, what we call the g- generational effect. Uh, if you, like, people lived in a place like uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where they had the Phoenix Lights uh, about 20 years ago, or in Los Angeles, where they had the Battle of L.A. Uh, 70 years ago, right. there seems to be this generational effect of people, um, you know, they hear these stories from their elders, and they, they, they tend to look up more, because maybe I'll see something like Grandpa saw. Yeah. Uh, then that, that's it. So we really, the the major article that we wrote, essay article we wrote in the book with this this edition of the book, is uh, is I got good thirty pages wide, and it's called measuring the phenomena. Okay, and and this is the the, the in depth uh, measurements we did over the last five years. And I, I just want to note before I turn this over to switch, this is to me is original. Um, scholarship. This is original analysis. Not many people have done this. Uh, I don't know of anyone who's done it as broadly on the available data. And that's, you know, that's greatly owing to the fact that you have drive, but you also have a, uh, the ability to uh, to get it data. And I like the way you, you know, you shred it down to the uh, the facts side of it. Switch. Let, let me uh, have you jump in here and and, and give us give us uh, some thoughts here, Cheryl's passing. Yeah, I'm wondering what what other kind of uh, patterns were you finding, and uh, uh, did you include uh, uh, occupant reports in, in this, or is it just uh, basically uh, uh, hard UFO sightings? It's it's hard sightings. Um, well, back from when I was a columnist and I read these things regularly, uh, particularly the um, uh, National UFO Reporting Center. It's, it, that's very easy to get into. Um, uh, MUFON, you had to have an account. And they were very kind with me at that time and gave me a, a guest account because I was a journalist. I wasn't really allowed. Our, our newspaper had very strict rules about being members to anything. But uh, the patterns, um, most people don't have anything about the occupants of the craft. I think in all uh, of the almost uh, 300 articles that I wrote over seven years, I don't think I had more than five articles that made a reference to the occupants of the craft. Okay. And okay. so that kind of stuff's not there. Um, uh, again, uh, I, the anecdotal material has been basic. We filtered that out. We didn't want stories. We wanted cold, hard numbers. Now in, in some of the sightings we hear, uh, uh, obviously, we get uh, sightings of what appear to be uh, uh, metallic nuts and bolts craft. We also get really strange sightings sometimes where the craft seems to change shape or is something more like a light. Do, do you have uh, any factor in there for some of the higher strangeness sightings? Or Oh, yes. Okay. So, oh, and how yes. Does, can you give us some idea of what that's about? Well, okay, let's talk about the changing UFO. Um, I never really gave it a lot of thought until I heard Dr. Villay on uh, Coast to Coast one night talking about it. And I thought, I better go back and take a look at it. And when I, if I were to plot all the UFO data in my database, okay, on one big plot, fill my screen with it, most everything would be all up in the upper part and 
the changing UFO was so small in the sighting amounts that I could barely discern it from the bottom line of the graph. Okay. Barely somewhere between 65 and 123 sightings a year. Okay. Okay. Very small. They're rare. They're very rare. Um, and, and, but that, showed us something that changing UFO is uh, changed my mind and thinks is probably one of the most regularly scheduled flights out there. It's there. Really well said. Oh, it, it, it is. It is so level. It is consistent about a hundred, about a hundred a year. Okay. Give or take, you know, and, and that was important. Another thing was um, we found, we did some other searching down in what I'm going to call the tiny numbers. Now, Linda had come up with this premise that the truth was in the exotic shapes. Okay. So right. we, we did kind of a, an experiment and said, okay, what's, what's, uh, what's, uh, what shapes can we reliably look at and say, that's not an air, probably not an airliner on its, on its side. You know, so we took out cylinders, we took out uh, cigar shape, we took all those kinds of things out, okay? We kept circles, squares, polygons, all the weird stuff, okay? Non-aerodynamic, okay? And that seems to be a big driver of what they're talking about on TV right now. Non-aerodynamic, no propulsion, obvious, you know, that kind of thing. Very well said. And it came down to... 32% of the sightings. Well, the commander has heard me talk on his show previously where uh, we like to throw, we throw away about 70% of the sightings and keep about 30% and say, that's where the truth is. Okay. Well, Linda pushed it a little bit further and said, let's stay with this aerodynamic shape. So it became 32% and 68% is what we threw away. Well, when you get down into the tiny numbers associated with some of those exotic shapes, we discovered something interesting. There's this shape out there. Uh, it was first really talked about back in 1986 by a Japan airline freighter, uh, a Japan 747 freighter pilot uh, coming over from Japan. Uh, and it was a Saturn-shaped UFO. And it is purported to be about a half a mile wide. Okay, it... it X number of times wide of uh, a, a, a 263 foot uh, 747 is okay. Right. And um, uh, so we we looked at that and I said, okay, let's start looking at some other shapes. And while we're looking at other shapes, suddenly we started noticing, wait a minute, that pattern of availability is very similar to that Saturn shape. And we found a total of four shapes or three shapes that went with whenever the Saturn shape is there. So are these other three shapes. Okay, uh, one shape, and, and and by the way, it's not at the same amount. So maybe we only have like uh, uh, somewhere between 40 and maybe 70 of these uh, uh, Saturn shapes a year. Okay. Uh, oh, the teardrop shape goes up in number and has a similar availability pattern. of It shows up when the Saturn shape shows up. Oh, then there's the egg shape, and that shows up. And with the higher frequency, and we looked at these this these teardrop shape and egg shape UFOs and said, "Wow, if the Saturn is a mothership, kind of equated to an aircraft carrier, uh, then there's going to be a whole bunch of auxiliary ships for smaller purposes. So we think the teardrop shape it's a much bigger thing anyway. Uh, it's probably some type of shuttle." Large, large scale shuttle, and that the egg drop, uh, the egg one is uh, something on the order of a um, uh, 
uh, a scout ship, like a two-person scout ship kind of thing, okay? Right. And um, boy, it it followed that pattern very nicely. In fact, when all the UFO sightings were falling literally into the toilet in 2017, 2018 timeframe, I was at the 2017 MUFON conference down in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I was talking to Lou. We were having coffee with Lou Alessandro, and I had my computer in a printer there because we were giving out free – give us your count, state and county, and we'll, we'll give you a printout what's been seen around your area. And I told Lou about the fact that the um, uh, Saturn-shaped ship and its auxiliaries are on the increase. Maybe that's why everybody else went home. <laughs> and and he look he you know like he always has that very stoic look okay yeah. he looks at me and gives me a troubled look he's like can you print that out I which I did and he looked at it and he got even more troubled look and says can I have this and I said yeah he folded it up like a three fold thing and put it on his inside lapel pocket so um, that's some of the weird stuff we found now. Would most people researching UFOs see that? No, it's the tiny numbers. Here in the United States, we have this attitude. It's got to be the mega number, the number one, the biggest thing. Right. you know. And, and that's what anybody who's reached out to me with this whole flap going on right now with the media. I had, I had a reporter call me last week, asked me about triangle, uh, not triangle, but the sphere UFOs when that footage from the Omaha thing came out. Okay, right. Hey, sphere UFOs, is that something? And I said, yeah. He says, are there a lot of them? I said, they're number three in the country for sightings, you know, averaging somewhere between um, 1,900 a year and about 933 a year. And the guy about shorted out, the reporter about shorted out on the phone, you know. And But the point is, everybody tends to go for the big, big, big numbers. Right. And we have discovered that it's the non-exotic, non-aerodynamic shapes and the tiny numbers where the secrets are. How how far back did did you start your uh, data base? How what okay. year? Or? Okay, okay. For our original book, we did two thousand one through two thousand fifteen. Okay, okay. And, we and, and, a great, and a great book that is. Oh, it's terrific. Um, um, you know, it's funny compared to the book you're going to get in the mail. Um, that 2017 book is going to look like a first-year algebra book compared to a calculus book. Very uh, cool. Is there, I think it's a really difference. cool way to put it, too. Well, the first book was 370 pages, and we tightened it up considerably because the book, the way it sh shook out, the new one shook out at 431, uh, and uh, this is tightly packed. Um, we, we actually plotted out graphs of every single, all 35 shapes by year, by month, by hour for every single shape. And then we did state summaries, which were a two page summary of each state telling what the averages were and what their monthly plot, yearly plot, hourly plot is. Okay. Uh, so uh, it, it's not just numbers and tables. It, it literally jumps off the page at you when you look at these graphs. Cheryl, okay. gonna, now, me, how far back did we go? Okay, go I'm ahead. Sorry, hold on one second. I just want to grab something real quick here. Juggle uh, this this question that you're answering for switch with this X. What I need to uh, ask you is, you spent a lot of time um, career-wise, intel, and looking at this. When I looked at this, it was always a collateral duty for me uh, or a, a number of my years. This approach really makes sense to me, and it makes sense to me in, in a way that we looked at things when we were trying to figure out 
what was going on in our case, obviously, with some kind of an enemy. Uh, your thought on that? I, I, I was thinking, well, I was listening to the presenter, to Cheryl. Yes. And that's my Irish wolfhound whining behind me. Sorry about that. You, you go back. Not too loud because if my bear dog hears her, <laughs> then the, the adolescent love story will start once again. <laughs> it sounded like, I, I, and I saw your, your, your background, Cheryl, and it sounded like I was listening to an NGA, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, <laughs> briefing. <laughs> And uh, so I'm wondering if that's when you were a government contractor, if you worked for them, or if you worked for them, and they used to be the defense mapping agency. Yes, that's exactly the way that um, that the HUD, getting the HUD, what I like to call substantive intelligence analysis, is the way that you were describing. Um, so I'm really impressed by that. And I'm not an engineer, so you, you, you seem to have the best of both worlds. Um, the, the military experience, um, I'm, I'm a two-service veteran. I was in the Air Force for two years, and I climbed telephone poles, and people shoot at you on those things in, in Southeast Asia. Um, then the, um, But the, my time in the Navy, I was a senior electronic warfare specialist. Okay, so the collateral duties that go with that kind of work is breaking things down in an intelligence concept, you know. Right. Absolutely. Um, now, in, in Lockheed Martin, I did a number of things, but in the last, uh, what I'm going to say, the last um, 20 of my 32 years with them, I was in the IT security field. Um, I was considered one of the antivirus gurus. I was also considered one of the penetration gurus. So I had a tendency to take whole big, firewall download um, data and put it into a spreadsheet and crunch is what I used to do. So um, I, I had the eyes to look at data and let it sing to me, so to speak. Yeah, and there there is um, there are computer programs, there's applications, I2 being one of them, there used to be or link analysis type things that can be overlaid with um, with, with with geospatial intelligence that and I'm sure you're way more advanced than me that can just make everything come alive to you when you look at it. So yeah, I'm pretty impressed. It sounds like an NGA professional briefing. So let's work back to uh, the switches. What, what the question you was. You were working the history and how far you went back. Cause I, the, I think that the story behind that is very compelling. When the first book came out, first thing, Linda, is got the science degrees between the two of us. Okay, she's uh, used to work at the National Academy of Science. She was the head a head research librarian or head librarian for the toxicology library at the Environmental Protection Agency for fifteen years. Okay, smart lady, smart science background. Uh, she said, "Let's put some science to this whole idea of, of researching all this data when we first started." Because I had just been writing a newspaper column and I was starting to do – I was doing county statistics, that kind of thing because New York State was my beat. And we had we had discovered some really wild stuff, showed it to some of the old timers up here who were used to be you know, uh, MUFON directors here in New York State maybe 15, 20 years ago. And uh, they looked at this stuff and said, we didn't know there was a cluster there and we didn't know there was a cluster there either. Okay, And um, there was the assumption that it was Lake Erie – in the Hudson Valley, and our data showed ground zero in New York State is Suffolk County, Long Island. Huh, my talk point? Hmm, 
wow, you know, what a, what a concept, you know. <laughs> uh, but um, bottom line was when the book came out, we got email after email and said, why didn't you go back 40 years? Okay. All right. So this time around, what I did was I, I, I knew fork, fork data was there. Uh, I had to ask up for a special report from uh, MUFON when I went to get my 2019-2020 data from them. I said, could you run a report for me? I don't want any citing information. All I want is dates and times of the reports going from 1960 to 2000. Because Linda and I specialize in 21st century sightings. Okay, what that came up with, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it was about uh, 13,500 sightings over 40 years. Now, 13,500 sightings is what we had in, 19, in 2014. Okay, so that's another reason why we really weren't concerned of everything going back. It was a very tiny percentage because in those days, people had to send it in by fax, call somebody's answering machine, send somebody a letter, send somebody a clipping, that type of thing. And that was the problem with gathering data. And we didn't see, start seeing a serious increase until about 2001. And remember, I was an IT specialist when broadband started getting proliferated in major metropolitan areas and their suburbs. And you can see the increase over the first four years, 2001 through about 2004. And everything prior to 2001, even 2000, uh, 2000 itself, was tiny. It was like half or not even half. It was like a quarter of what 2001 was. Okay. That's the excess. That's what broadband was for UFO reporting, what the printing press was for everything else. Very, very interesting a point to make that's very cool so, so amanda we did, up we there did, in by the way we did, oh, i'm sorry we didn't even in fact i did go back to uh, ken st john at mufon at one point when i started seeing some patterning uh, another reason i did that 1960 to 2000 thing. I wanted to be able to illustrate to people that there's this six to eight year cycle it goes up and down goes up and down Okay, and um, we were able to demonstrate that as well. It's in the book. I, we do one completely blown up so you can see what the volume is, and then we connect it with the 20, uh, 21st century numbers, and you can barely see the, the first, these 40, this 40 years worth of data. It's so small as compared to what we've got since 2001. Okay, so you'll see that in the book. It's quite impressive. Amanda, there you are up in the... Uh, the rainy maritime provinces. You have been around this uh, uh, this kind of talk and this kind of subject. I mean, Mark is another one that uh, Mark, Mark that I'm speaking of is Mark D'Antonio. Uh, what what's your reaction to this as you're hearing it really you know from on the inside for the first time? Um, well, actually, it was about this time, roughly two years ago, where I, I got to briefly meet Cheryl at the Pine Bush Festival with our wonderful producer, Bill, um, Bill Skywatcher. He put me up for a few weeks, put up with me, and I got to go and see Cheryl talk about these books where she was putting in all this detail, state by state, you know, county by county, and I was just thinking, like, what an overwhelming project she is taking on. Like you have to have dedication and passion to, you know, I mean, to go in and like 
not only switch the spelling of uh, incorrect information, street names, town names, to add the longitude and latitude, but then you have information like the correlation between different shapes and different frequencies, which is going to be so invaluable for everyone in this field. I'm just wondering, you know, other than being such an asset to the community and, and searching for the truth, was there maybe a more personal reason you, you took on this kind of lifestyle of investigating UFOs? No, actually, there was nothing personal in it. I mean, I'll, I've had my share of UFO sightings, but... Uh, you don't consider that personal? Yeah, but they were a long time ago. Okay. Um, no, actually, um, we, we really didn't look at it that way. We, we, what we were amazed about was in the uh, middle of October of 2015, we had got done sharing all this just New York State stuff with all these old-timers up here. And... Um, uh, and we were staring, we were in our pub, uh, you know, staring across a couple of pints, look at all the cool stuff we found. And the more we talked about it, the more we realized we were onto something. And then we said, Hey, Jeepers, what would it take if we tried to do it for the whole country? We thought maybe it'd take a year. It took us 18 months. Okay. Now, what, but what we just did for 18 months for the first 15 years of 2000, um, I just produced the same book in 750 hours. Wow. Okay. But it's an even bigger, uh, the, the hardest thing I did most of it. I built most charts, got everything there together, wrote a majority of the narrative. And then Linda took a week's vacation and just sat here and went through the whole thing. I had to literally go up to Staples, print out whole scads of certain kinds of charts, like all all the thirty, uh, all sixty pages of the of the shapes analysis, all uh, hundred and one pages of the of the states analysis, that type of thing. And I had them all printed out, took them in, laid them out on the bed, row after row after row. <laughs> You know, that type of thing. And let her look at each of these things and say, well, we're going to put this here. No, we're not going to put those first. We'll put these first in the book, you know, and that kind of thing. She's the publisher. She really is. And 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 I bow to her. She's editor in chief at that point. And then she went in and started writing her um, her um, her preface. And uh, Commander knows this. Uh, Linda's a very different interview style. She sh- tends to shoot from the hip with two machine guns. And uh, yeah, that's a good uh, way to put it. Yeah. So we, I mean, we, it, it, when you, it, it's terrible because the stereotype of the librarian, um, it just, she kind of blows that away pretty quick. Oh yeah. Well, uh, when you read the preface, the two, uh, two or three page preface that she wrote in this thing, um, I don't want to use the word hostile, but let us say it is very opinionated. And uh, she's got a very serious attitude about what she wrote about and what her criticisms are, both of the government and of the UFO community. And um, I read the thing over three times and said, I can't complain. I know it's hostile, but it, it's hostile is not the right word. I, I think it's assertive. I think it's assertive is good. It's assertive. It's enough of trying to play um, – patty cake about this and and get down to it. And I, I think that that's a critical edge. That's a good word. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, she, she put the point right on everything that has been wrong with everything. I mean, she literally starts out here. We are five years later and we're still doing the government's job. 
you know, the, the resources of the government. And she literally says it like this. She said the resources of the government should be doing this, not a retired information security specialist and a underpaid librarian. You know, uh, this this was a this this project was a it str- was a strain on us both. Um, uh, now, that all said, the book says everything. We we made this book. I don't know if you've seen pictures of it. It's bright pink. You can flag in an aircraft with it. And we made it bright pink for two reasons. One, two women put this together, and there was a lot of misogyny in the UFO community. It didn't give us the time of day when we first came out with our first book. Point one. Point two, the book is dedicated to Coral Lorenz, who was the first person to start gathering this data, which led to MUFON. Okay, we dedicated right. it to her, and uh, so this was a girl's book, so to speak. And we wanted we wanted to make a statement about this is women's research here, and I, we're not going to let it go away. I, I completely applaud it, and uh, since I occasionally still wear the uh, Hello Kitty uh, neck gear for my <laughs> ID, I don't think there'll be any problem there, and it'll be proudly <laughs> displayed on my desk. Can I tell uh, you how big this project still is? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. The desk reference was the big project. Okay. Um, what we're getting ready to do, and we built this thing with templates instead of, you know, getting on Word and writing the book from beginning to end. We built it in um, small modules, a combination of everything from uh, Microsoft Publisher to PowerPoint to uh, Excel to Word. Okay. And then we generated PDFs and basically we took the route of building the book in a modular fashion with PDF things that we were able to later drag into uh, uh, Acrobat and assign, put the header on it, put page numbers on it, all that kind of stuff. And we can right. literally build the book in, in like, like a stack of blocks. Okay. Now um, we've made a reduced set suitable for a state book and what we're getting ready to do and we've got a manufacturing process for doing it here here in our little shop here uh we're going to produce we're going to produce 50 individual state books with resolution now the, the desk reference goes down state and down to county level the state books will go right down from state county down to the municipal level and the shapes they they saw what years Okay, if we had put all the state, the municipal level material together with the UFO site, not not citing reports as much as a a line, it's the 2001 through 2020 and the numbers and this shape, that shape, the other shape, you know, that type of thing. Um, And what numbers they had. If we had printed this out as a traditional book, it would have been uh, upwards of about 6,800 pages. That's three Oxford dictionaries stacked on, on top of each other. It's about a foot thick. Or a little yeah. bit more than that. So what we decided to do is produce 50 individual state books in this modular form. And we're getting ready to dump about uh, somewhere between three to five a week for the next three or four months. And then, cool. we're, then we're going to do uh, 35 individual shape analysis books. And then the two of us are going to go off into the sunset. Well, I've heard that part before about the sunset. And if it's true this time... Um, you should go off to uh, a great round of applause. And regardless of what you guys uh, do, you you have set a, a really, a truly, I think, an impeccable standard here for the approach, um, the way the information is presented, and, and take, 
you take old school method and you apply every piece of new tech or new production that's available for efficiency on that. I, I'm, I'm, I've always been very impressed and we've, we've had our talks about this. Uh, Switch, you have been around this. We're all pretty close in age since you were a, uh, a, a young teen. What's your take when you hear this kind of a, a laydown? When you think about the way this information is presented, uh, it's it's just invaluable uh, because you know we've. Uh, I mean, I grew up on uh, Frank Edwards' books, which were very entertaining, but there's you know you you couldn't really get much in the way of any kind of analytical data uh, out of these. I mean, there's been a, I think a few uh, attempts uh, on a very small scale. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the Utah UFO display by Frank Salisbury. He chronicled. Uh, he uh, Junior Hicks was a local uh, high school teacher there, and uh, he uh, he chronicled all these. Uh, reports and all the shapes and everything there's great uh, diagrams in the book uh, of the uh, uinta valley which is well known for the uh, skinwalker ranch but uh you know it's just uh most of the books are uh, some of them are analytical in that they're they're looking for various patterns uh, jacques Vallée found interesting patterns with folklore and, and modern day ufo experiences but uh but books like this are uh, are, are just going to be an, an absolute uh, a great resource for uh, you know for any kind of future endeavor to try and you know put things together and try to see uh, how these patterns work and what makes sense because we it's be, it'd be very easy just to go on and on collecting you know reports and 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 publishing them and not really doing much with them and uh, you know telling an entertaining story now and then but that won't uh that probably won't get us the answers that we need can i interject a point absolutely um, you're the part, guest <laughs> part of what we were looking at um when we first started planning we had about two months to kill before we could gather the data from new fork and and later get a dump from mufon uh back in 2016 and linda being the uh astute librarian she went out and did a little research and nobody since blue book had done anything in a statistical context and what they hit they had twelve thousand. Well, i've got that many for for uh, for five years in the middle of this past two decades right. okay uh, for each year you know uh, we, we've got a lot of numbers so we've got infinitely more than they do which brought up a very interesting point uh, somebody sometime back and said hey if this whole thing happens this was last year this was presented to me if this whole revelation thing that we're expecting from the government if if rubio gets that bill passed in congress we're going to have reports from agencies and such and he said you know we could end up with uh, congressional hearings and he paused and then looked at me, the guy we're talking about, and he said, Cheryl, you and Linda are the only two that's ever done statistics other than Blue Book. Uh, you could end up in front of Congress. And we have both reconciled that issue and said, OK, fine. If they want two gay ladies up in front of Congress. We'll be happy to go there and shoot from the hip. Well, it'd be nice to have at least somebody in Congress that has actually studied whatever it is that they're talking about. Uh, <laughs> If we don't delve into that too much on Macmillan's X-Files, well, I will, I will uh, hurt you a little bit and back away from that. Congressman Katko, Joe, uh, John Katko in New York State received his copy two days ago. Excellent. 
Now, you, you have alluded to it, so we're down to our last approximately uh, sure. eight minutes here, seven okay. minutes of the show. I want to, uh, you, you brought it up, so I'm going to take it around. You'll be first, uh, Cheryl. Um, your uh, your thoughts about this pending release that we're supposed to see in the report, just what you think is coming up. But before we go, I want to make this point before I forget, because I know I'll forget at the close. There is a... a uh, a continued uh, uh, grind that goes on, especially in the UFO community, that not enough of the young set is uh, interested. Um, there's not enough uh, interest in it, and there's not enough uh, attempt to it. What you and Linda have done here is really laid down. I think it applies to a lot of, of, of analysis. But in this particular part, we're talking about the UFO um, data that's there. Uh, it's a tremendous effort, and I think it really is uh, mentoring at a level that, that most people have just, they need to catch on, they need to realize it, even if you have a passing understanding. So enough on that. Uh, I, my hat's off to both. You know that. Um, what are your thoughts? And then we'll take it around with the rest of the host. What do you think is going to come out? Um, and it's, we're waiting at any, really any moment now, uh, this time, this particular part where we're, we're recording this show. You know, numerous polls have suggested that 80% of Americans seem to think the government's not being square with us. And, you know, I am of the belief, especially with some of the things I've, I've heard said by certain government officials, I am of the belief, especially after Obama made that comment about he asked, do we have a lab someplace doing this and doing that, you know, and he was told no. Now, either it was below his pay grade or and clearance or – Maybe the government has been just a bunch of um, got their fingers in the ears since 1968 in the Condon Report, and they literally haven't been paying attention, which is supported by the notion that uh, 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 Radcliffe, I don't remember the guy's first name, said um, said a couple of months ago that none when the Navy started reporting these these buzz buys back back in the uh, early 2000s by these Tic Tacs and whatever, and any other shapes that showed up, uh, uh, none of the intelligence, intelligence agencies were paying any attention or wanted to get involved. Again, the stigma. And this, and then literally it took naval intelligence, since it seems to be those guys, the guys in the fleet that are dealing with it the most, uh, took an interest and said, we'll own it. But Think about this for a minute. Maybe there has not been any men in black for all this time. Maybe there could be some kind of hidden cabal in the government. Yeah, maybe. Okay. But I'm beginning to think that maybe the government doesn't know what they're talking about with this stuff. And they're as clueless as anybody, which brings up the point. Are we going to have with all this stuff just a bunch of swag? No insult to you, Commander. A bunch of swaggering pilots and and some retired spooks telling us everything, or is somebody going to reach out to the rest of the UFO community where we have some bloody expertise? Well, I'm going to leave it there because we're down to our last couple minutes, no. and I want to hear from the other co-hosts on it. And Cheryl, I think it's just a perfectly way you phrased it, and I think you have a lot of weight behind it. Uh, I'll start with you, Amanda. What do you think? Anything? Uh, is going to come out about this report with your uh, cousins to the south of your border? Um, well, kind of uh, along what Cheryl was saying. It's it's not that I think they don't know. I, I think her media is the last place that you should be going for honest information. But uh, I, we've had our hopes worked up before. 
I don't want everyone getting too excited to be disappointed, but what they say or don't say or omit, maybe that's where we're going to get our answers, but don't don't believe what they tell us straight out. Look deeper. Agreed. Agent X. Yeah, yeah, I was, <laughs> it's funny. I was just going to say exactly what Amanda just said. Don't get your hopes built up too much. But I wasn't going to say out. I was going to say out. Huh. I don't have an accent, for the record. <laughs> Neither do I. That's okay. The uh, show has closed captioning. Uh, <laughs> in, in in any case, no, I think Amanda hit it right on. Uh, and, and she, I, I agree with her. Switch. And, since I, need, back, President I need your takes, input for, uh, in about a minute. Okay, and I, I don't get my hopes up either. Uh, it, it's like sometimes the, uh, they're forced to comment on a video and, and actually finally say things like, yeah, you know, uh, we can't identify that. And then nothing. You don't, there's no follow-up. There's no legs. It's uh, I, they think that if they keep it, you don't uh, comment on it, it'll go away. I have, I'd be happy to be wrong. I don't have any hope. I, I'll leave it with this. Uh, I agree with everything that you all have said. I'm not expecting much, but I don't need this to confirm my uh, my beliefs or what I have concluded. And here, here. and the other part is uh, our guest tonight, Cheryl Costa, uh, Linda Miller Costa, her wife. UFO sightings desk reference. It's available on uh, Amazon. It's if you're into this and even the littlest bit, it's worth your time to get involved, and you need to start following Cheryl Costa's writings. Um, she does a great work, and it's, I really thank you for uh, at short notice jumping in to, uh, to join us on the show. Let me make sure I hit all our quick plugs and go around here before we run out of time. Homes for Our Troops is an organization that Mac has spent a lot of time working with. They put a tremendous amount of well in excess of 80% of donations go back into the construction of homes for our combat injured veterans. Uh, so that they have a, a living space that uh, accommodates their special needs and requirements on an individual basis, as well as their families. The People's Mosquito Project, as Mac affectionately likes to refer to it, the Mad Englishman, uh, starting or starring Ross Sharp, our very good friend, rebuilding the Mosquito Fighter Bomber back in England to return it to the skies in the UK, and uh, everyone that's uh, a principal on Mac Mulley's Military X-Files is a member and probably some folks that are on tonight with us on this special show will be getting a special gift uh, membership as well. And uh, also Parnon Estates, P-A-R-N-O-N Estates. That's a very good friend of mine who is uh, working very hard uh, importing the finest olive oil in from Greece to the United States. Uh, they're uh, contributors to the show and uh, wonderful folks, and it's a great story. As always, I, I try to close these shows with uh, God's peace, surpassing all knowledge and understanding. Thank you very much again to Cheryl Costa and to Clint Hayes, our two special guests tonight, and I thank you all for listening to Mac Maloney's Military Xbox. <laughs>